This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, is the Bible true? Now, we often record Bigger Questions before a live audience, but we couldn't get our guests before a live audience. And in fact, we're recording today in a hotel foyer in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. So we're asking today's big question to Dr. James White. James is the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, an organization defending the Christian faith based in Phoenix, Arizona. He's the author of more than 20 books and an accomplished debater, having participated in over 150 moderated debates. And he joins me now. James, welcome to Bigger Questions. Good to be with you. You've participated in over... Is it 150 debates? 170. 170. Do you keep count, do you? Yeah. Yeah. Especially recently. I've been doing a lot of them recently. Right. For some reason, this year has been very busy. Okay. Is that because you like arguing a lot? Oh, yeah. Uh, I just argue with everybody who... uh, If someone walks by here, I'm going to probably stop and and start an argument. (laughs) Start an argument and start a debate. No, it's just just opportunities have have arisen. Uh, Just over the past uh, two weeks, we've done... did a debate just that last evening on Islam uh, with Dr. Abdullah Kunda, and we were able to address a subject I've never gotten anyone to debate before, and that was, was Paul an apostle of Jesus or an innovator? Because if you believe what the Quran says, the Quran coming after the Bible, then the Quran gives a completely different view of Jesus than you have in the New Testament. And so many Muslims believe that Paul basically made up the... Jesus that he preaches, yeah, because it's very different than Jesus of the Quran. Yeah, so we had an excellent exchange last evening on that, and then uh, barely two weeks, uh, two weeks earlier than that, I had uh, one of the most interesting debates we ever had. It's already gone rather viral. Yeah, um, my fellow pastor at Apologia Church, Jeff Durbin, and I uh, debated two atheists at the University of Utah in the United States, and. Uh, out of 170 debates at that point, that was probably one of the most interesting ones. Well, what made it so interesting? One of the two atheists that we debated is a brilliant medical physician, but um, let's just say his behavior was unusual. That's unorthodox, I would say uh, to speak. Unorthodox is, is an <laughs> underway, understatement to put it. And uh, he was uh, prowling about the stage, getting in our faces, uh, Really, uh, very, very interesting. Wow. And then uh, toward the end, he, he pulled out a bottle of antifreeze wow. and poured a cup of it and challenged any Christian in the audience to come forward and drink of it based on the longer ending of Mark uh, drinking poison. Right. Um, and so <laughs> the number of memes that have been generated on Facebook and Twitter uh, by that particular debate is just truly epic. Wow. Uh, really that's, that's, so that's, that's unusual. That doesn't normally happen in your debates? No. Debates obviously can have a, a very wide uh, number of expressions. And as I've gotten older, I have attempted to get to know the individuals that I'm debating, if at all possible, especially, especially people that I debate, I debate more than once. I've debated Shabir Ali, a very well-known Muslim apologist, um, over a dozen times, uh, Adnan Rashid and others. And once I've gotten to know them as individuals, it's amazing how that changes the debate. So how does it change? Well, now it's two human beings mm. rather than just two people who don't have any idea who the other one is and we're just arguing certain points and, and things like that. Um, there is a almost a warmth to, the, especially especially my Muslim friends don't exactly know what to do with me. Yeah, because I I've studied Islam, I'm uncompromising, but I very clearly care about them. Yeah, 
and it changes everything. And that makes a big difference, doesn't it? It makes a huge difference. And personally, I enjoy the interfaith uh, debates more than uh, debates with atheism. Okay, well, why is that? Why, why do atheists not sort of float your boat, as they say? We have something in common that gives us a common basis upon which to have the argument right. between myself and a, whether it's uh, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Islam, whatever it might be. We have some common foundation upon which to make definitions. In reality, if you really dig into an atheist uh, epistemology... Um, so it's a study of how you know things. We have to spend most of the debate just establishing how you can know anything at all. Right, yeah. And so um, I've only done a few uh, atheism debates because of that. Um, there are others, I think, that are, are better prepared for, than that for me than, sure. than I am. So go back to your debate uh, a few weeks ago with this antifreeze. So you mm -hmm. didn't drink the antifreeze? No, uh, but I, what I did say is textual criticism matters. Uh, textual criticism <laughs> is... Uh, the study of the manuscripts of the New Testament. And I'm actually doing my third doctorate right now uh, in that field. Uh, there are huge developments going on right now in the field of New Testament textual criticism. And they're, they're exciting, even on an apologetic front. They're very, very exciting. Um, but uh, I don't believe that the long ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20, was written by Mark. Um, and so he was challenging us to do something based upon a text that is minimally questionable. Mm. Uh, and I think the large majority of New Testament scholars would, uh, would not view as having been originally written by Mark in the first place. But it was very clear he, Dr. Clark wasn't overly concerned okay. about that, <laughs> right. uh, that level of information. He, he was less concerned for accurate understanding of the transmission was, of the original text. That's that'd be an <laughs> understatement. So what makes you then want to debate? Uh, it's, it's not a matter of wanting to argue with folks, to be honest with you. Um, there are uh, far greater scholars than I am that should never debate. Sure. Um, I've met people who uh, should, you know, when you ask them a question, you know, there's, a, there's this long pause as they're formulating their thoughts. Yeah. That doesn't work in debate. No, uh, no. They, as, you know, when you, when you grow up on radio, dead air is a bad, 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 bad thing. So yeah. you... Uh, I can I can multitask. So um, in a debate, you have to be listening to what the other person is saying. You have to be taking notes. At the same time, you have to be organizing your response. It's just a skill set that I just happen to possess that allows me to uh, engage in in a lost and dying art. Let's be honest. Most of what we see in political debates and things like that are not debates at no. all. They're they're either food fights or they're fashion shows. Yeah. Uh, but the idea of debate. Goodness, back in the 17th century in England, uh, many ministers, uh, just to get their, their degrees, by their third year, had to be able to not only read Greek, but to debate in Greek. And there are very few people who can do that today. So that used to be a, a skill set and an ability. And, and I, think, I think debate honors the idea of truth. It mm. honors the idea that we are made in the image of God, that we can communicate with one another. And when a debate is done right, you're showing not only honor to the other person, you're showing honor to the audience as well. So that's why there are time limits. Yeah, You're showing honor to those individuals by disciplining yourself to be able to express yourself in that way. And there are very, look, we have so much access to information now. Yeah, uh, You can Google anything, you, whatever search engine you want. But what you end up with is people hearing 
one side and then they go listen to the other side and then they go back and listen to the other side. It's only when you get the two sides together and you can have cross-examination. That's where the debate takes place. Yes, it's a true debate, I suppose. That yeah. is where the debate takes place. I just simply don't do debates, don't have that cross-examination period because that's when um, you really can find out whether a position is consistent, if it can answer the tough questions. Yeah, so you, you think the debates then can be a way of finding out truth? Of course. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would not do what I do uh, if I did not believe that they could do that. And I have seen those debates used uh, to bring people to uh, a firmer faith in Christ or to bring them out of, out of error into truth. Oh, you bet. And, and the nice thing is right now, anyways, I'm not sure how long this, this is going to last, but uh, the nice thing is you do a debate in Sydney, you do a debate in Melbourne, and sometimes instantaneously or within a few days, uh, people are able to benefit from that interaction on mm. the other side of the planet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, we just we we have become so accustomed to that that we don't realize how amazing that really is when yeah, you think about that's it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Now we're talking about the, the Bible being true, and you obviously defend the truth of the Bible, and you can debate a way of getting there. But what made you convinced that it's true in the first place? Oh, tell me a bit about your well, own story. Well, uh, obviously, you know, when we ask the question, is the Bible true, there are all sorts of different levels upon which that question is being asked. Uh, are we talking about the Bible as a revelation from God as a whole? Are we talking about its truthfulness historically? Are we talking about its truthfulness as being consistent with itself? What about its transmission over time? I mean, there's just so many aspects that in our modern day, um, I've taught all over the place and I recognize the objections that are presented against scripture and they are multifaceted. They mm. are, most believers have not run into all the, the realms no, no. of them. And so when you say, is the Bible true, then you have to ask, what is the context in which you're asking yeah. that question? Are you, are you a supernaturalist? Do you believe there can even be revelation? Am I dealing with an atheist? Am I dealing with a person who believes that the Bible may have been given by God at some point, but has been corrupted, has yeah. been changed over time? Bart Ehrman and his legion of followers today, um, uh, you know, Jesus interrupted and misquoting Jesus and so on and so forth. Uh, every university campus, every college campus in Western, the Western world and, and other places have been infected by this kind of hyper-skepticism mm. that they raise that, well, we can't know what was originally written, things like this. Those are all different areas, mm. and a lot of believers honestly feel very, very ill-prepared to deal with the history of their text. Yeah, yeah. Most people are converted, they're handed a Bible, and... There, go with that. Sure. Um, and how it, and the result of that is many of them think that the Bible has always existed with with gold-edged pages, thumb indexing, and a and, leather cover. And written in English. And written, <laughs> written in English or whatever language they might be speaking. And it, it just isn't the case. The, the history of the text, uh, the process of canonization, uh, the, the method of canonization, these are all the issues that you're, you're dealing with when, when you ask that big, broad question, is the, is Bible, the true? Bible true? Yeah. But unfortunately, there isn't enough attention paid to that. Mm. So when you consider this question, this big question about uh, is the Bible true, how much do you think that your uh, assumptions or your presuppositions uh, impact your reflection on the question? The presuppositions matter, and they will very much. If, if, if you have a person who has a presupposition 
that we live in a naturalistic, materialistic world, world, world universe where mm. there is no supernatural, where if, if you cannot detect it on an instrument, weigh it, uh, test it, whatever else, it doesn't exist. They have no basis for the acceptance of the claims of Scripture. Yeah. And so they're not in a position to render a verdict other than it can't be true. Yeah. And so, yes, you have to address the presuppositions uh, very, very importantly. So it becomes a bit of a circular argument then, I suppose, particularly when it comes to things like miracles and things, doesn't it? Like if you say, well, there's a miracle there, but they can't happen because miracles don't happen. There, exactly. Well, there are, there are valid circular arguments and there are invalid circular arguments. A, a circular argument that is a tight little circle uh, down lower is an invalid argument. But when you get to the issue of ultimate authorities... Think about it this way. Um, how does God prove his own truthfulness? Mm. There is nothing to which he can appeal that has greater authority than himself. So even scripture says God swears by himself because there's nothing greater to swear by. What's he going to do? Swear by something he's made? That's lesser than him. Yeah. And so in, in human discourse, we appeal to something that has higher authority to us to verify what it is we're saying. But once you get to the top... Yeah, it becomes harder. No, it becomes impossible. And, and so ultimate presuppositions fundamentally have to be circular, but the point is that the final authority has to contain within itself sufficient basis to guarantee its own truthfulness. And so that's where, I, that's where I'm going to be starting when I look at the overall overarching concept of the truthfulness of the Bible. But then that's, let's, let's face it, with most people you're talking to, even in the church, that's not the level they're functioning on. They want to know how I can know what it originally said. They want to know why it's in the form that it's in now. Or, they, or sometimes they have questions about how do I know that the English translation is, is adequate for my understanding? Well, that's yeah. not what it was written. It was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and, and, and Greek. Greek so yeah. um, you, you sort of have to ask questions. You know, what, really, what information are you really looking for here? Yeah, um, yeah. You mentioned before about the textual transmission mm-hmm. of the of the New Testament or of the Bible as being a key area of interest for yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an area where people have criticised the Bible. I mean, Richard Dawkins describes it as Chinese whispers. Uh, you <laughs> mentioned, you know, Bar Ehrman's work uh, that you know Ehrman, uh, well, Christopher Hitchens claims that Ehrman exposed the huge uncertainty befogging the New Testament texts. So is there uncertainty That's really concerning funny. the New Testament text? It's really funny because if you actually know Ehrman and his work, which I do, I've debated him, you know that his popular work has been interpreted just as they, the, those other atheists interpreted his work. Mm. The reality is that Bart Ehrman uh, did his PhD at Princeton Seminary under Bruce Metzger. Yeah. Um, this is one of the finest text critics ever. He, and my, my doctoral uh, advisor, uh, Dr. Yordan, on the work that I'm doing right now, also did his PhD under Metzger. Yeah. Um, so the reality is when he speaks to f- other textual critics, Bart Ehrman that is, um, he recognizes that we don't really have any questions about the original form of the New Testament. It's just a particular word here, a particular word there, something along those lines. It's when he's talking to non-specialists that all of a sudden it gets much more vague. Yeah. Um, and I have criticized him specifically on that, on that point. I remember he was on a, an atheist webcast. I'm not sure if they were recording in a hotel foyer, but <laughs> an, an atheist webcast a yeah. number of years ago. And he was talking about, he has certain pet 
textual variants that he likes to talk about. Yeah. So that's what he was talking about. And then so the, the host, you can tell he sort of leaned in and he, he said, so, so Dr. Herman, after all this, he says, what do you think the New Testament was originally all about? Because what this atheist is hearing is, oh man, we, have, we don't have any idea. We I mean, it's just, we can't it's just a mess. We can't reconstruct we, we, the No, it's, it's, it's a mess. And you just, you just hear Ehrman go, well, he didn't know how to answer. He goes, well, it was about Jesus as the son of God dying for the sins of the world. <laughs> and it was just like someone had popped the balloon for the poor atheist. It was like, oh, <laughs> you know, really? Uh, but that's how people, people want the New Testament to be this this document that was originally a Dan Brown novel, you know, yeah. and we all get to find out what it was originally about. When the reality is that what Ehrman is talking about is, for example, one of his favorite examples is in Mark chapter two, when um, Jesus heals uh, an individual and there's a minor textual variant in the Greek text between uh, the Greek term orgasthais, he became angry, and splunkthais, as I recall, uh, with compassion. So in other words, was Jesus angry at the man or was Jesus compassionate with the man? But he healed him in both instances. Right. Especially in Mark, Jesus gets angry more than once. And so it doesn't really change anything, but he likes to bring that up. Mm. And the person who's looking for a reason to disbelieve expands that out to every verse, when in the reality, that's the only verse in Mark that that Ehrman's going to be pointing to mm. that has that kind of a variant in it. And so the reality is right now we are going through a revolution in the methodology that we utilize to examine the manuscripts. Finally, yeah. we are using computers. <laughs> well, revolutionary. No, no, seriously. Everyone knew it was coming. We just did not know what form it was going to take. Now, I'm not going to bore your listeners. Sure. Is this, is this connected to your PhD it research, is. your doctoral? So it can is. you unpack a bit about what you're looking at? Well, um, let me give you an illustration mm -hmm. so you can see how it, how it matters. Um, in Jude 5, in the little book of Jude, in the fifth verse, uh, almost all English translations up until recently said, the Lord delivered a people out of Egypt. Well, that's sort of, okay, yeah, the Lord delivered a people. Uh, you know, there's Mo songs about Moses and the Lord doing this. And the Lord says, Jesus delivered a people out of Egypt. Now, I even saw your response to that. That's a significant difference. Sure. Doesn't, because that mean, it's, it, doesn't it mean it's been corrupted? It, what it's, well, if it's Jesus, it would, it would say something about Jesus. I mean, if, if he delivered the people out of Egypt, who is Jesus? Yeah. I mean, there's, that's a, a reference to the deity of Christ. We've always known uh, that there are manuscripts that said Jesus rather than, uh, had Jesus rather than Kodios, Kodios, the Lord, mm. Jesus, Jesus. We've always known that. But utilizing this new methodology, it's called CBGM, computer-based uh, genealogical methodology. We have discovered that the manuscripts that say Jesus, their closest relatives also say Jesus, so it has high coherence. The manuscripts that say Lord, many of the times their closest relatives say Jesus. So what this tells us is the scribes were, it was more comfortable to say Lord than yeah. it was Jesus. And we see the evidence of it from the computer analysis. And so the Nestial in 28th edition, which is the current standard edition of the Greek New Testament, has Jesus rather than the NA27, which had Lord. Yeah. The point is what CBGM is demonstrating 
is that what we have in the manuscript tradition is incredibly accurate. All the Dan Brown stuff about mm. Constantine gathering up manuscripts and changing things and all the rest of that stuff, it, the, the computer says, no, never happened. And now, instead of just going, well, that's what this scholar says, that scholar says, now we can just provide reams of, right, yeah. of, of documentation from the computer saying, here it is. Because, I mean, that's what some critics of, the, of Christianity would claim. Like Richard Dawkins, for example, claims that the New Testament is, well, is like Dan Brown, like it's just ancient fiction. Well, and, and, and this, that's one reason why someone who is a biologist should probably stay out of areas that he knows absolutely positively nothing about. Right. Uh, because that's absurd. And if you, even if you go to someone like Ehrman and you actually read his scholarly works, uh, let alone his, his popular works, um, you will see he's not saying anything like that at all mm. because he knows better. Uh, I've rarely found Ehrman in error on facts. Uh, the reality is very different than what, uh, what people are being told. Yeah. So what do you think is then the toughest objection to believing that the Bible is true? Well, the, the toughest objection is obviously the reality that uh, the Scripture reports activities in the past that are not ongoing today. In other words, the existence of miracles. And generally, when you look at Scripture, I, I agree with, the, with those who say that miracles are primarily clustered around periods of specific revelations. So, for example, if you look at the book of Acts, um, there's a very clear, in my mind, progression. Um, you have lots of miracles, and it had to do with the establishment of the authority of the apostles to begin with. Yep. So how much do you think then that the Bible writers, going, going back to the Bible, so how much do you think that the biblical authors were consciously writing what they thought to be the truth? So for example, in John 19.35, reacting to the appearance of a blood and water coming out of Jesus' side at his crucifixion, uh, it says, the man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. So do you think he was consciously trying to write the truth or was he just really bad at writing the truth or was it just uh, invented later to sort of make it believe that it was the truth? Well, uh, see, that's, that is a part of, of John's entire message. Um, John, John has a purpose. He starts with the prologue of John verses 1 through 18, lays out his, his purpose, uh, identifying who Jesus is. And once you get to that portion of John, what you're getting to is... You've now had the whole story given to you. Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, well, he's to, this is where he's dying. This is his crucifixion. Well, yeah. yes, but once you get to the end there, you, you, you start getting these in John 19, John 20, John 21. You start getting these statements about uh, this, this witness is true. What he has said is true. And you're getting to the point where as the story is coming to its, its climax and its end, the assumption was that this would be then presented to the world by eyewitnesses themselves. And so what you're getting is the community around John, uh, possibly, probably being the last one writing. We don't know the exact order, but in all probability, John's, John's the last one. This is a part of the way that John constructs his gospel. You've seen this Jesus, you've seen this Jesus, now you've seen him die. You, Thomas is gonna say to him, my Lord and my God, when he rises from the dead, um, you have John 21, sort of the epilogue. And all through there, you have the beginning of this theme of, truth. This is truth. He is the truth. And we have testified. We have seen. First John does the same thing. It starts off by saying, what we have seen, we've touched with our hands concerning the truth, the word of life. 
the idea is that truth has become accessible to us in this world. The incarnation mm. took place. John 1.14, the word became flesh. Yeah. And remember, the, the human philosophical systems of, of the day really made truth something that was significantly less knowable. You had to climb a, a tall philosophical mountain to get to it. And what John is saying is truth has invaded our world. Mm. And that, that light is made available to all of us. And John is just simply a, one witness. It's not that he was having trouble writing the truth. No. Um, it is that if you followed who this Jesus was all the way through the gospel, to see him dying on a cross is amazing. Yeah. The, the eternal Logos made flesh, the one who, who raised Lazarus from the dead, is now dying. How, how can this be? Yes, there is a purpose in, in, in this, and it did take place historically. And this person is an eyewitness who's writing these things. So he's obviously concerned for the truth. Um, but then that comes back to some of the presuppositions, doesn't it? Because they would say, some would say, well, the eternal Logos, for example, can't die. So is that dependent upon your presuppositions, perhaps? Not so much presuppositions as it is if you'll just allow the entirety of what the text says to, to speak. It's not that the Logos ceased to exist. It's that the Logos entered into flesh and that one gave his life mm. upon Calvary's tree. And so it's not that God ceases to exist. Death isn't the cessation of existence, first of all. But it is a central part of John's gospel. Well, John also says here that uh, this, he's writing the truth so that you also may believe. Mm -hmm. So is that the response that's required from understanding the truth of the Bible? Well, that is certainly the desire of all New Testament writers, but John is explicit about it. John, John is not saying, I am a dispassionate a uh, recorder of historical events, and I don't care what you do with what I said. That's, mm. that's not, uh, and that's a modern standard of journalism uh, that doesn't exist in the ancient world. So, so you're saying because he's he's biased, then? Oh, he's very biased, and and <laughs> that is that does not that does not make him uh, imbalanced. Uh, it does not make him untrue. In fact, the modern idea that we have of reporting facts without relating them to grand truths is a artifact of, of modern existence that would have no one in, in centuries back would have had any idea right, why in the world yeah. we would even think that was a good thing to do in the first place in fact they would have viewed us as being shallow thinkers right they would have viewed us as not finishing the task was well, that because we don't there's not connected to a, a big story so to, to speak. the big story and you're not trying to persuade someone of something exactly how, how is it how is it changing you mm. just having facts doesn't change you because if you're made in the image of God, you're supposed to be made better by these things. You're supposed to have a greater understanding of what God is doing. Mm. We've gotten into a, a time period where we, we no longer have that. And that's where all the transcendent values have gone, including the transcendent value that, that is assigned to man himself. The, the, great, the great ideas of self-sacrifice for the mm. service of others and things like that. There's no foundation for that in a secular worldview. Mm. So, James... Is the Bible true? <laughs> I thought we addressed that for the past uh, uh, 25 minutes or so. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, the, the Bible is true. We just need to recognize that we need to understand all the different ways in which it is true uh, so that the answer we give will have uh, a greater assistance to people in our, in our day and age. Let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to this big question, is the Bible true? From John 19.35. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies that you also may believe. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, 
Dr. James White. Thank you. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.